take your offering. So if you've prepared anything to give by way of cash, check, or gold, you can do that through the bags. The rest of us give online, and uh, may the Lord bless you as you give. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> We've been making our way through, uh, in recent weeks, through this uh, amazing, messy epistle. This was not one of uh, Paul's favorite letters to write. He has um, a lot to correct in the church of Corinth. They're a pretty young church, only a few years old. Uh, but again, the city of Corinth is like a, an ancient Vegas. They are just, it's full of young people. It's a cultural hub. It's a, it's a social hub. There's, there's, it's a sexual city. It's a drunk city. It's a party city. It's where all the young people go uh, to study college and other things. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a place that needed the gospel. Paul went there strategically. It was so constant in Paul's mind that he took the gospel to hubs of happening and activity and and, uh, and culture. He went to the heart of it so that there might be churches planted that would seep then out into the rest of the world, and it did. And so he went to Corinth intentionally, and though he would have known he was going to suffer somewhat from the plagues that would, uh, uh, that would come upon the church from the culture, what he was used to was suffering. What he was used to was attack and persecution, and he'd received that his whole way through his second missionary journey that uh, he planted the church of, Cor uh, of Corinth in. Uh, he, he was chased out of Philippi. He was beaten up uh, in Thessalonica. He was chased again into Berea. He then went to Athens and was chased out of, or, you know, rejected from there. He was just constantly persecuted. He got to Corinth, and God told him he's going to have 18 months of, of relatively uh, persecution-free time. And while that was good for him, what, is, what, what the Corinthian church failed to see in Paul at that time was a real-life example of suffering. What happened when he went away is they, they whatever it is that happened, they, they drifted to become extremely cultural. They were friends of the world, which is deadly to a church. And one of the, the biggest ways we see, now if I was to ask you, <clears throat> you were Paul, right? You're out uh, preaching Christ and, and you're, uh, you're on a missionary journey and you get a letter from a church that you planted or you helped plant and in comes the letter with somebody from the church and they've got questions and they're pretty okay, some weird, some curly questions, but the person carrying the letter also reports to you that in the church they've got some messed up things happening, including a man sleeping with his mother's wife, father's wife, stepmother probably, um, or, or, the, or that they're, they're taking each other to court, you know, church of 60, 50 people, they're, they're divided, they're, some people are getting drunk during communion, all of these problems are going on. What would be the number one thing that you would, you would probably start out with right out of the gates that you're just going to go to immediately? Number one for me would be most likely be the incest that has been celebrated by the church. That's just me. That, that's a bit of a turnoff as a, as a pastor to hear or think about that. I think we should read that and be offended. But the number one thing that Paul goes to, and, and this is significant, the number one thing that Paul goes to is the problems around there trying to make the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ, attractive to the world. Incest can wait. We'll get to strange sexual perversion later. Number one, we need to talk about the cross of Jesus Christ as folly to the world, yet power to those who are called. So go with me to chapter 1, verse 17. And this sort of comes off the back of what we were talking about last week, how, 
how there was, there was divisions in the church, and much of it was the, the cause of the problem is what we're going to talk about tonight. <clears throat> but in verse 17, he says, uh, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's, that's him saying, uh, remember last week, he was saying, uh, stop calling yourself by the, you know, getting into groups and factions according to who baptized you. That's not a claim to fame. Forget about it. God didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach. Then he opens up this new thought with this. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The number one problem here to Paul is that the cross of Jesus has been emptied of its power. So we'll read verse 18 through to 31. It's a lengthy segment. I pray that you would be attentive. I hope you have your own Bible open in front of you and following along. You can <clears throat> take notes if you need. Mark it up as you like, <clears throat> but stay focused. Here we are, the word of the living God. Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen? Amen. This is the word of our living, triune, omnipotent, sovereign God, and may we be blessed as we understand it. <clears throat> I don't know if you're a Christmas fan. Any, any Christmas trees and Christmas lights up yet in the households? All right, I win. Mine's up. No one? You guys need to do better. Get in the Christian Christmas spirit. You're not that reformed that you're not allowed to celebrate Christmas with, with glee. Uh, but, but the, you know, there's some Christians who just hate the nativity scene. or whatever. Maybe you like putting that up in your, in your house. You love the tree. You love all the, all the imagery. Well, the, the very first Christian inscription, uh, maybe you could call it a, a, a nativity scene, an Easter artwork, the very first inscription or picture of, uh, of Christian theme is dated back to about 200 AD, and it's, it's actually just a piece of graffiti that was inscribed on a wall. Now, before you get ideas and think that's a good Christian thing to do, it was actually done by one of the Roman persecutors. It was done by one of those who hated Christianity. 
It's a picture of Jesus on the cross, arms outstretched, and a man over uh, to his side lifting up his hand in worship. And it says, Alexamenos worships his God. Alexamenos, obviously a Christian, worshiping this, this dying, crucified God. The, the thing is, on the head of Jesus is a donkey's head. The message they wanted to get to the world was, was the way that they viewed Christians was that Jesus of Nazareth is a jackass. You worship this Jesus guy, you are committing ass worship, donkey glorification. That's in fact one of the, 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 the slurs that was thrown on the Jews and the, and the Christians in the first century. Um, in fact, there was in, uh, in the 200s to 300s, Tertullian wrote about a man who walked around uh, the, the streets with a sign, right? not repent, the kingdom is nigh, but, but what he had is, is a picture of a man with donkey hooves and, and donkey ears, and it said, the God of the Christians. This is, the, this is how the world saw Christianity and this message of the cross was an ass on a tree hanging and us idiots surrounding it to worship that donkey. Does that, does that make you feel somewhat embarrassed? And if so, then good. That's right where Christians are supposed to sit. Hated by the world, considered folly and weak, by, foolish and weak by the world, yet glorious in God's sight. This, this passage is, is really a rebuke to the Corinthians. They had let the wisdom and the glory of the world shave the edges off their own preaching of the gospel and their own living of the gospel. We see here in verse 18 that Paul, Paul sees that the cross of Jesus Christ, the, the preaching of the cross, is always supposed to offend. <clears throat> Verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That word folly is the, in the Greek, the word moriah. It's, it's the word that we get the word moron from. The, the, the preaching of Jesus Christ, the word of the cross is moronic to the world. If, if that's what you've felt, as, as you've shared the, the gospel in your workplace, if you've handed out tracts and seen people's faces as they realize it's Christian material and not free bus rides or whatever it is that you're handing out, they look at you like you're an idiot, that's good. That's, that's where Paul thinks Christians are supposed to be. The word of the cross is moronic to the world. Sorry, it says to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Number one that I want to look at tonight, friends, is that the cross, this embarrassing, foolish message of the cross, divides the world in two. It divides the world in two. So many people have different ways of, of, of sort of segregating or, or distinguishing the world. You've, maybe they, they want to see the world through the lenses of race or through the lenses of, of rich and poor or, or they want to look, look at us as conservatives and, uh, and left-wingers. Whatever they want to do, they want to make these distinguishing uh, 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 markers or, or in Paul's day, there was the Jews and the Greeks. The, the Greeks wanted to separate into which, which philosophy you followed, whose preaching you walked around listening to, to, uh, which, which eloquent speech you ascribe to, and the, and the Jews, of course, wanted to say, are you, are you a, a Sadducee or a Pharisee, or, or where do you find yourself, and on which rung of these are you? Everybody wants to segregate, and we all have our own ways of defining ourselves, that, that we want the authority to self-determine. Well, the cross comes into the world by the gospel of Jesus and the preaching of the apostles, and it divides everybody by itself. 
It divides everybody by the marker of the cross. Your relationship to the cross is the most important thing about you. And it is the most distinguishing mark of everybody in the world. Everybody stands on one of the sides of this statement. Verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The whole world is separated into these two markers, either those who are perishing or those who are being saved. That's, that's the biblical uh, uh, segregation of the world. Those who are in Adam, perishing, going to hell, enemies of God. And those who are in Christ, sons of God, eternal life awaiting us. That's the distinction. So, so we see in, in Paul's mentality, when he's preaching, he's not giving to the hearers some, some kind of power to nullify or, or receive the cross. It's not as if he puts out this truth and, and then it's on you whether or not the cross is powerful and wisdom and, and whether it's, it's, it's worth having or you nullify it and throw it down. The cross stands planted in the ground by God's appointment. You either accept it or are condemned by it. It has the power. The, the, the word of the cross as it is preached has the power to condemn some and, and save others depending on your response to it. So I want to ask you tonight, where, where are you? As, as you look at the cross of a crucified God, dying, very likely naked. I know we like the, the pictures of, of Jesus that have him in some kind of remaining loincloth. That's historically very likely inaccurate. In, to, to, to maximize the humiliation, those men would be, would be stripped naked. Women, if they were crucified, would be crucified with their fronts to the cross to, to keep some kind of public uh, niceties. But, but men were, were exposed to the whole world. That's your God. When you look at that, are you repulsed? Do you, do you draw back? Do you refuse to bow down? Or do you see there the power of God for your salvation? That is the ultimate question that Paul wants us to ask. <clears throat> you are either perishing or you are being saved. Everyone in the world falls into one of those two markers. Wherever the gospel goes, it'll, it will be, and we saw this in Paul's own experience in Corinth, and Athens, and Berea, and Thessalonica, and Philippi, and everywhere else he went. Some despise it, others are saved by it, by believing. <clears throat> so now let's look at verse 19 and onwards here, 19 through to verse 25. You want to see, not only does the cross divide the world, the cross also destroys the wisdom of the world. The cross divides, the cross destroys. Look at verse 19. This is a, a quotation from Isaiah, the, uh, chapter 19, verse 14. And in it, God is, God is saying how he's going to bring salvation going to bring a rescue from a certain situation in such a way that it was going to make sure that nobody else got any glory. God was saying through Isaiah, I'm going to bring salvation in a way that the wise man is confounded and confused and the discerning one who really thought he had the mind of God and, and God would do well to listen to his advice, he will be embarrassed that he didn't think of this. Whatever God does in salvation, he makes sure only he can get the glory for it. And so we see him quote here. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So Paul then asks, he, he issues this, this challenge, if you will. 
He got up into the ring and, and, he, and he asked everybody, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And really here, he's, he's, he's confronting, again, uh, in, the, in the church of Corinth, he's confronting two main mindsets. And you're going to see it in the rest of the passage that we read. He's going to talk about Jews and he's going to talk about Greeks. When he says here, where are those who are wise, he's talking here to the Greeks. When he talks about power and, uh, and, and signs, he's talking about the Jews. When he says wise, where is the one who is wise, he's using that word um, sort of in their, own, in their own dictionary. We know that biblical wisdom is good. We, we thank the Lord for his books called the wisdom literature. Wisdom is, is good for a Christian. But in the, in the Greek Gentile day, they had philosophers. They had these traveling preachers, and they would go to places like Mars Hill, where, where, where Paul preached at, um, uh, in, the, in the Areopagus in uh, Acts chapter 17 in Athens. They had other places in Corinth like that, and, and they would sort of go to these big amphitheaters, and they, they would talk with wisdom, or the, the word in the Greek is Sophia. But what they were, it wasn't so much a matter of what you said, and whether or not you would educate people, the whole point of their, their eloquent wisdom was to be able to persuade people by, by sort of having pizzazz about them and, and getting people into this, into this mindset of agreement with what they're saying, sort of amping up the whole congregation to agree with them by, by, their, by their energy and their smooth tongue, that it never really mattered what they were saying. It's sort of like... Being in, a, being in a river and, and sort of being carried away and maybe you go to the beach and, and you, you jump in front of the waves and, and you're getting, you're getting a, a, a thrown, thrown along on your bodyboard or your surfboard and, and, and it's great fun and you come out and somebody asks you, which, which direction was, was, the, was the water pushing you? This is supreme importance to me. Was it pushing you north, east, south or west? You say, I don't know. Do not care. You can probably find out if you go and look. I was just having fun going along with the ride. That's what it's like going to one of these, these wise preaching sessions that the, the Greek philosophers would do. They didn't care what they were being told. They just cared that it was exciting, it was fun, this guy speaks well, and I agree, I'm going to put up my hand and sign a decision card. <clears throat> right? It, it makes its way into Christian evangelicalism. But here Paul is saying, <clears throat> the wise one, where are they? Where is this, this Greek, uh, uh, he's calling out of the church and of course to the wider culture, all those who would rather persuasive uh, speech rather than truthful content. And of course to the Greeks, in this wisdom that they had and all of their philosophy, one of the, the highest uh, 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 distinctions or, or attributes of their gods one of the, the most mighty things that made them gods and not men was their apathy, their inability to suffer. They were just so far removed. They were above us. They don't feel things. They don't suffer like we do. They are gods. So Paul comes to them and, and he says, no, God is not removed. God is not unsufferable. God is not removed in a way that he never will suffer. He, he was, he came, and then he suffered in the cross. He suffered more than anyone has suffered before. They, they see that, and they see absolute foolishness and weakness. So to them, the gospel is out. It is absolutely unthinkable. It's idiotic. It's moronic. It's disgusting. <clears throat> but then you also have the scribe here, he says, so where, where is the one who is wise? That's referring to the Greeks. 
He says, where is the scribe? Referring here, and if you read the Gospels, you'll see that word come up frequently, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were the religious leaders, those who, who would write down and take copies of the, 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 uh, the rabbi's teaching or who would write out the scrolls of the Old Testament, those who would be experts in the law. They also, these Old Testament professors, they also did not find a good uh, reception with the gospel. <clears throat> because they, and you've heard this before, they expected that when the Messiah promised from the Old Testament, when he comes, he's going to come in power that would be extremely politically centered. He would overthrow the Romans, he would set up his kingdom, and he, like in the Old Testament with Moses and Elijah and, and, and other kings who would come later and prophets, he would display his divinity through miraculous signs and wonders that destroy his enemies. That's what they were expecting. So, so when he says here, where is the scribe? Look down in verse 22, when he carries on this thought, he says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. That's what we were talking about before. <clears throat> but these Jews specifically, you can see the, the folly in what, what they're really asking for. They're asking for a Messiah to come, and, and if God really came in, uh, to us in the Messiah, he would, I don't know, he, he'd go around doing miracles, it would be undeniable, it'd be amazing, and then he'd just do something to cap it all off. He'd really defeat the ultimate enemy. That's, that's what we want to see. Really? Re like, like three years, maybe, of eradicating disease out of the whole nation of Israel? Like, like raising people from the dead with a word, maybe? Like, how about dying... Pro uh, prophesying his own death and then resurrecting the way he told you he would. How about that? Is that enough of a sign for you? Of course it was. They knew that. They were guilty because what they were asking for, they'd already received. And, and more signs were not actually going to convince them. But also, they did not want the, the, the miracle to be looked on to be the crucifixion. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23 God spoke through the pen of Moses and said, anyone, anyone who is left to hang and die on a tree, let that be a sign of a curse. And way back then, that's sort of a throwaway line. It just looks odd there in the Pentateuch, but, but we see now why God said that. The sign of a curse is that somebody would be hanged on a tree, and that is exactly how Jesus died. And when we say Messiah, remember, in, in the... Jewish language, that's, that's literally saying the anointed one. You're going to tell me that, that God anoints for blessing and then curses that blessed anointed one. That is literally a contradiction in terms. That's an oxymoron for a Jew. They, they cannot put those together unless, unless they are called, they are being saved, and as we're going to look next week in, in chapter 2, unless God regenerates them to bring them to understand God's wisdom. So here we go. That's why the, the wise philosophers of the Greeks would never understand the gospel. That's why the scribes, the Jews, these Old Testament professors would never understand Christ crucified. So verse 21, For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For God... Sorry, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. 
Do you see that? Through wisdom it pleased God. Sorry. The world did not know God through wisdom. Right in the middle of verse 21 there. The world did not know God through wisdom. The Jews and the Greeks, both in their own wise ways, wanted to seek this, this divine knowledge and come to an understanding of God. And God's design was in such a way that whatever they had tried to know God by, it led them to destruction. It's as if, it's as if there was a great uh, uh, treasure hidden somewhere. And all the kings of the earth came to try and find it. And, and, and the, the, the originator of that great treasure had inscribed the map to it on, the, on a pavement, on the floor, covered by dust. And all the kings came riding their, their camels, their horses, their, their chariots, and, and they were looking up into the stars for directions, and they were looking at the, the castles for, for landmarks and ways to find this treasure. And with all their eyes turned up, they, they entirely miss the way. And only the one who, who's standing on the ground falls to their knees, puts their face to the dirt in humility. Only that person is the one who finds the glorious treasure. And all those who, who try and seek it through, through looking up and, 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 and putting themselves in a high position, they, by God's design, will miss the gospel. Everyone has to come humbly to the cross or you miss it. You do not get to, to keep with you your, your own self-glory, a good and high reputation in the world. You must be willing to, to, to sacrifice that if you are coming to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Men in their, in their wisdom did not know God. So what was... What was Paul's seeker-sensitive approach? He loved church growth. He wanted to promote the, the cause of Christianity in the world and fill the pews. And so what did he do to not offend anybody? Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ. Not enough to just preach Christ. Anyone can preach a, a God who comes to save and heal and love and, and pour out His power in the world and come as glorious reigning King. That's not the Gospel until you include the shameful crucifixion through the cross. Jesus will always be forever and ever till eternity and, and all of its ages come to an end which will never be. Until then, Christ will always be crucified. He will not always be dead, but he will never lose the marks in his hands of crucifixion. He wants to be, you see this in Revelation, as the, 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 the showing of this glorious lion, he chooses to be depicted as a bloodied lamb. That is our God. He will always be called the crucified one though he is now resurrected and in glory. So, so friends, I, I need to implore you, you. You must never be tempted in the workplace, in the, in the family, around the dinner table, in the street. You must never be tempted to censor the gospel. The world is, is an offensive place. It's okay for us to bring some truth that will offend. We, we need to realize that every temptation to remove that, that cutting edge, that embarrassing element of the gospel is the design of Satan. Sin is still sin. Tell your friends that. 
Jesus is God. Crucifixion is crucifixion. Let's stop redefining these words. Resurrection is resurrection. Exclusivity means exclusivity. Repentance means repentance. Hell is hell. Heaven is heaven. The offense that you receive as you preach that is a good sign. You ever just dream of the day you get to stand in front of a crowd, unleash the gospel and have them cheer and, and say, wow, what, that's so amazing, you know, like, like a TED talk. And, and they, all, they all appreciate it and love it. I remember hearing an evangelical go and give a TED talk and he never once mentioned the crucifixion. But everything else he spoke about just sounded nice. It, 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 it struck people. It was deep. This was what they were looking for. And they, they gave him a mighty applause and, and wanted him back and Friends, that happened because he didn't mention the crucifixion. So, so wherever we are today, we need to realize that Paul tells us to preach Christ crucified. Look at the end of verse 23. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It is exactly what they don't want to hear. Whatever culture the gospel goes into, it is exactly what they don't want to hear. To the young, hip entrepreneurs, we offer to you a poor 33-year-old man who never even owned a home. To the Muslim, I offer to you a Jew who claimed to be a part of the Trinity. <clears throat> to the businessman, I, I offer to you a savior who lived off the donations of his friends. To the stylish, I offer to you a king who had nothing about him that was ever impressive to look at. <clears throat> to the social activist, I offer to you a Lord who paid taxes and said that his kingdom was not political. To the feminist, I offer to you a man. A man who made very clear that, is that news? Is that news? <clears throat> we offer to you a man who was sent by the Father important, <clears throat> who claims that we are all like a needy, poor little woman in need of saving. That's the gospel. <clears throat> to the racist, I offer to you a, a brown man who brings into his kingdom white, black, everybody in between to his glory. <clears throat> to the cool, to the hipster, I offer to you the oldest and most ancient truths that are yet still not out of date. <clears throat> To the, to the materialist, the atheist, I offer to you Jesus, who did miracles, came from the womb of a virgin, and is the eternal God. <clears throat> to the liberal theologian, we offer to you a Jesus, who preached on hell, preached against sin, and was not open and affirming. <clears throat> Beyond all of this, above all of that, the great offense is that we offer to every single person a crucified Lord Jesus. That is more offensive than everything else we've touched on. The crucifixion is the offense. But what does verse 23 to 24 tell us? It's stumbling block to Jews. It's folly to Gentiles. But, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. Christ is the power of God, though the Jews see him as weakness. He is the wisdom of God, though the Greeks look at him as foolishness. And so verse 25, let me insert some words here to, be, to help with interpretation. For the supposed foolishness of God 
is wiser than men. And the weakness, the supposed weakness of God is stronger than men. Even God, at his weakest and most foolish, making the most strange and, and weak, dis, uh, ridiculous, disgusting picture, is there able to save any and all who come. That's his display of glory, power, and wisdom. So, so the gospel, as it comes out, the crucified Jesus, he divides everyone into two. He destroys the wisdom and the power of the world. And number three, I want to show you that the cross directs glory to God alone. If, if the power of the gospel to, to bring people into the church and, and make disciples, if that rested on the eloquence, the smoothness of the speech of the preacher, then, then you'd have both the hearer and the preacher glorified. Because there, there could be the speaker who could say, I spoke in such a way that they all flocked. They couldn't help but follow me and my teaching. And the people would be able to say, he spoke in such a way and I understood it and, I, and I'm not like those who now reject it. I've understood this eloquent, wonderful, wise speech. But in the preaching of the cross, the preacher is embarrassed the preacher offers a, a ridiculous proposal that you come believe in a crucified Jesus and you will be saved for eternity. Right. Or, or if we go the other way, if, if, if the Jews were right and, and, and the, the ability to bring people into the church and into the kingdom rested on the fact that we have a superior political miraculous power by which we, we constrain people and we take over people, then the leaders of that Movement, first of all, would get, who are wielding the sword would, would get glory. But also, the people who are leading the Jewish nation, coming up with this theory and prescribing it to the Lord, saying this is how you should probably take down the Romans, right? that, those people who came up with that would also get some glory. I gave advice to the Lord and he listened. He did just as we advised. Well, Paul says that the only way for God to be truly glorified alone is through this gospel preached. In the cross, the only person who gets any credit is God because he uses, he by his wisdom has used the very thing which is, is so offensive that draws, causes people to draw back, he uses that as the thing which draws people in. Only God can do that. Where you see a people or a person delighting in the cross, you see there a miracle of miracles that only God can do. That is a born-again man, and that is the essence of chapter 2. I hope you pre-read that for next week. <clears throat> Wherever you see a people worshipping the crucified Christ, like Alexa Menos, who worships his jackass God, there you have the world turning in on itself, imploding in confusion as we go in glory to heaven. But I think the most insulting to the church, and not at all unintentional from Paul, and, and the greatest proof of what he's saying is in the church itself. Right, read with me in, in verse 25. He says, sorry, verse 26. I'm trying to make the point, says Paul, that, that God does the embarrassing thing. God does, he goes the low road. He, he has dragged his, his plan through dust to embarrass the high pompous world. For example, you guys, 
take a, a look around as, as, as the, and I rest my case. This is the only evidence you're going to need that I'm right. Look around. See all of you guys. See? God never picks anything impressive. Right? Verse 26. For consider your calling, that is, your being called to Christ, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So, so he's saying, like, even according to their own standards. Okay, okay, let's, let's play your game, Paul says. You think that, that the wise uh, uh, Greeks should be appeased, and so you should preach on wisdom, and then the wise people will come into the church. On your own standards, you're failing. You're a bunch of idiots. Second of all, uh, if you think like the Jews that, that you should preach this political kingdom so that uh, you know, all the, the powerful, the noble people, the leaders of the world come into the church, again, take a look around. You're all weak. You're all poor, basically. Okay. So number one, number two, shut up. Preach the gospel of Jesus crucified. He, here's Paul just giving a, a backhand in a very, very subtle way. I really like it. <clears throat> but he says here, look at verse 7. Look what God did choose. God chose what is foolish in the world. He's speaking about the people who are reading this letter. So, so that's us. God chose the foolish. Can I hear an amen? That's, that's me right there. To shame the wise. So that those who stand in their own wisdom fall at the feet of Christ on judgment day. God chose what is weak in the world. Is that you? to shame the strong, so that the strong might crumble under the weight of judgment and the weak stand in the life of Christ. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not. In the Greek philosophical mindset, there was, there was this, this distinction between being and non-being, and the worse, the more evil, the more stupid you became, the closer you became to what they would call non-being. You would stop existing. And so to speak to somebody and say, say, you are not, is just the highest insult. You are not even in being. That's, that's what the Greek philosophers would do. And so here's, here's Paul. He's chosen those that are not. The scum of the earth, scraping the bottom of the barrel, the plebs, you and me. And that is a title we wear with honor. <clears throat> to bring, right, he chose the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that, why, why is God doing all of this? Why is it? Now, now of course, it, it doesn't mean that we keep the gospel back from the kings and, and the leaders and, and the, the, the culture makers and, the, and the, 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 the famous stars and all. We don't keep the gospel back from them. They keep the gospel away from themselves. They deny it. They refuse to submit to it. It's their problem. But we all the more bring it to them. But it's true, isn't it? You, there's no such thing as a celebrity church in the world. There is no, there's people who try and it's always an embarrassment. There is, you, could, you could have a, 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 an entire church of all of the famous world changers, billionaires in the world. If, if you took all those who are Christians, born-again Christians, delighting in the cross, you'd, you'd have them all in, in our mother's room upstairs. There's just not many. They're not, they're not closed off from the gospel. It's just not God's usual way of working. So that we can look around, and as you look around here and look in the mirror of the bathroom after church you will see shining back at you this reality that no human being, verse 29, might boast in the presence of God. 
We have nothing to boast about here. And that is God's intention. So that, verse 31, as it is written, let no one who boasts, sorry, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He wants you to boast. He wants you to be proud and exultant and exuberant on one thing. And that is not you. That is not your power. That is not your achievement. That is not your nobility. That's not your, your reputation in the world. I, I know some of you have been sharing with me. Is you've, you've come more and more to be able to share and open your mouth to speak the gospel in the workplace. And, and you feel the pushback and the embarrassment. And that is to your glory. And, and others telling me how, how friends are coming to really understand the, the gospel and, and how they're, they're, they're engaging more and more with you. That This is the power of God. This is our friends and our loved ones and this world's only hope of salvation is if we, like Christ, are willing to suffer in shame. Because for all who are called, to all who do believe, we have, verse 30, we have Jesus Christ who became to us wisdom from God. True wisdom is in Jesus Christ and Him alone righteousness because in him is the obedience to the law that justifies and in him alone we have received sanctification to the jewish mind that's so confusing you've received holiness through an accursed man on a cross through his being cut off in uncleanliness you have become clean and holy in god's sight and redemption, that is, that is being brought back from our previous owner. That, that this glorious Lord really has redeemed us like the Jews wanted. They, they wanted a Messiah to come, overthrow the kings of the world like, like God did through Moses, and destroy Egypt, redeem them. Well, God has done that. He has given Jesus to overthrow the enemy of our souls but not with a, an outwardly glorious scene, but by giving his own life that Satan might, might attack him, might, might thrash him, might take him. And yet this was really the authority of Christ. His power in display, redemption achieved in the cross of Jesus where your sins and my sins, if we believe in this shameful sign, we are saved to the uttermost. And so we... We look here at verse 31. Let us go over it again. This must be your confession. Is this how you view Christianity? If anyone boasts, it's because of Jesus. The only thing I have to boast of is Jesus. Not, not might, not power, not wisdom. We just sung that. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'm going to close out here, but I, but I want to ask you, have you been embarrassed of Jesus? Have you tried to put makeup on that donkey on the tree? Have you tried to repackage this offensive material to make it look just a little bit shinier for your audience, to protect yourself? Pretending, of course, I'm trying to be relevant to them. They, they won't listen to me if I don't, you know, it's always out of love for others. Friends, let's, let's remove our, our shameful desire for glory let us bend the knee to Jesus Christ. And if you have not believed on him, this is your only hope of salvation. Jesus crucified for your sin to bring you to God. Let us, let us pray. <clears throat> Father God, as we gather and our, our eyes are closed, I pray, Lord, that you would put into the heart of everyone here who is, who is outside of Christ, 
who's hearing this message, and to them it truly is foolishness. Deep down, maybe they, maybe they outwardly display a Christian uh, enough behavior, but deep down they are, they are offended by this message. They desire worldly riches. They desire worldly glory. And like Judas, they'll come to Jesus if they can get that. And if not, they'll sell him for 20 pieces of silver. God, I pray that you would give to them a new heart, a new mind, new spiritual eyes to see in the cross the glory of the gospel, to believe and to be saved even tonight. And God, I pray that those of us who know you, we, we would remember what verse 30 says, that it is because of you that we are in Christ. You did this to us. Would you hold us fast? Would you make us to persevere in the mission you've given to us? And Lord, would you save those around us? May, may our family, our, our loved ones, our friends, even our enemies, may they, Lord, please be the called of God. And would you bring them to salvation? Sweep through this land a revival like we've never seen to the glory of our magnificent Lord, victor, power, wise, glorious Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Amen.